You are listening to the Living Truth Podcast with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. Please stay tuned to Living Truth as we engage in an in-depth journey of discovery through the discussion of God's Word for the purpose of devotion and godly living. We pray that you would be blessed through today's conversation and that God would sanctify your heart in truth, for His Word is truth. Good afternoon. This is John Corr and the Reverend C.L. Mitchell coming to you from Phoenix, Arizona. You are listening to Living Truth. We are so glad that you are tuning in. If this is your first time uh, listening to our broadcast, welcome. Uh, We are glad that you're listening. Uh, We are two friends who love to talk about the scriptures with uh, maybe our Bibles open and a cup of coffee or water nearby. Uh, and this is a relaxed setting, and we envision that you as a listening a listener are sitting in, listening in. Uh, anyway, we are in the midst of a book study, the book of Jonah, and uh, we're sort of still early on into the book. And first of all, before we get started, CL, how are you doing? Good to see you today. I am well, thank you. It's good to see you as well. Yeah, surviving the heat and the... The sunshine of Arizona? Surviving the heat yeah. and the sunshine. And and what we've said in times before is we're at record pace here. Yes. And um, we also jested about the idea that uh, we have something in similitude with the children of Israel in the yeah. wilderness desert, right? It's a dry and, heat. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what Moses, Moses uh, tweeted. It's and right. he said, hey, you know, in the book of Exodus, he said, hashtag Exodus, it's a dry heat, <laughs> laugh out law. <laughs> you know, it's biblical to do that stuff, you know? You didn't realize that. You're just quoting scripture left and right, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it's, but, but um, uh, prayerfully, you, you know, we really... Really had a, a moderate winter, yeah, and uh, a breezy spring. We, we had a, a we had a great winter, a great spring, and didn't get hot at all until no. like a week or two ago. All of a sudden, bam! It's 119 degrees outside, right. and, and, and you're wondering, oh yeah, we live in Arizona. So, so for those of you who do not live in Arizona. Um, if I understand correctly, uh, the devil is vacationing over here, yeah. <laughs> so a little bit of the pressure is off all of Enjoy the, the days states, off, yeah. right? Um, I understand that he'll be back yeah. <laughs> to your neck of the woods, yeah. but uh, right now, uh, he's here at his vacation well, home. Speaking of listeners, you know, we do have listeners all around the world, which we are very thankful for you, and uh, we do pray for you and and want to say hi and uh it's wonderful to have technology um, available to connect with people all, the, all over the world. And uh, we appreciate your listenership. And uh, we pray that God would speak uh, to you, you know, through our words, through our conversation that we have. Uh, we enjoy this. This is uh, um, relaxing and it's fun, as, but it's also it's God's Word. And uh, the Holy Spirit has ways of speaking. And, uh, and so we're going to uh, just jump right back in. Uh, I think we left off with uh, Jonah 1 in verse 6 or 7. So let me just read from verse 4. Uh, Jonah has been running away from God, running away from the commission that God has given to him to go to the Ninevites. And he runs away, and, he's, and it's, uh, he goes onto a ship headed for Tarshish, which is the opposite direction. And verse 4 says, And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo over, overboard, which was in the ship, into the sea to lighten it for them. 
But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship and lain down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man uh, said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may find out or learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity has struck us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What country? Uh, what is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. They were probably wondering where the dry land is. Um, then the men came, became extremely frightened and said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was coming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, Pick me up, throw me into the sea, and then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they, do, they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they said, on the, uh, they called out on God, and they said, I called out on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for thou, O Lord, has done as thou hast pleased. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped, and it's, rage, it's raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. We'll stop there. That's the end of the scene. So, now last time we sort of covered or talked about the background and, and the idea of, of Jonah fleeing, yet uh, these pagan or these Gentile non-Jewish uh, sailors crying out to God, having the sense to even, even call out, even to pray, you have this commotion going on above on deck. You know the storm, the storm is increasingly going. There, there's there's a lot of panicking going on board. You know. Meanwhile, down below, Jonah's sound asleep. There's this huge contrast, and then the captain comes to Jonah and says, "What are you? What, you're sleeping? How could you sleep? Could you maybe you can cry out to your God? Maybe He'll help. Maybe he, perhaps." He'll take notice. Perhaps he'll give us ear. Perhaps he'll listen to us. You know. And there's this. This we you know we talked about the the the, the mentality of Jonah. He's checked out. He's running from God's will. He's checked out. And now they're trying to figure out what's going on. And one of the last points we were making last time was the idea that they understood that the storm had. A divine purpose, a divine cause. This is a div- this is a storm. It's a divine causation. It's causation, and that somebody was to blame for the storm. That was two assumptions, and that now the third assumption is this: that if they cast lots, they'll get to find out really whose fault this is. You know, and so we join there in verse um, uh, verse seven. It says they cast lot. He's come, let us cast lots, so we may learn on whose account this calamity or this evil. Same word for evil. Uh, in fact, the same word that's used to talk about Nineveh, uh, back in verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it for their wickedness, their evil. Same word in Hebrew, is so this same idea. Um, he says, let's cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So somehow they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah, which is exactly whose fault it was. But I think we kind of mentioned last time about the whole casting of lots, you know, and that's you know something that was 
it was done in, in, uh, in the scriptures uh, for determining various God's will, so to speak, you know. Um, I don't know, maybe we can touch upon that before we go on in our, in our conversation on, on really, is it is that illegitimate? And how do you do that? You know, because it'd be great to know, you know, what God's will is sometimes and be able to simply cast lots and say, oh, there's God's will, you know. Absolutely. Um, w- when we look at this in a broad pagan um, ancient Near Eastern world, right? They used various instruments um, to ascertain the will of the deities. Right. Um, this could involve the entrails of animals. This could involve the bones of animals. Uh, this could involve something that was similar to modern dice, but not exactly. Right. Um, this could involve um, um, sticks of right. sorts. Uh, this could involve uh, certain stones that either lit up or did not light up in certain instances. Um, and, and of course, this could go in the pagan world into various arenas, like, for instance, an extreme case of, of, of uh, this in the biblical text that is clearly a pagan act is actually seeking a a non-prophetic, non-Yahwehistic voice to try and do some sort of conjuring of uh, of a person from the netherworld, like the witch of Endor, or like Balaam, etc., in order to ascertain the will of God. So the ancient Near Eastern world is all over the map in its paganistic attempt to try to uh, uh, come into contact with or or be aware of the will of God. Well, you know, in some cultures, even today, they still do things like that. You Indeed, know, you know, reading tea leaves and things like that, but cards, and, cards. But yeah. you know, but you know, I I know Christians who check their astrology. Mm. Now, that's a whole nother. You know, that's sort that's of similar. It's like okay, of, uh, that that does have similarities. It's similarities, and it's condemned, by the way, in scripture. Right. Yeah. So, but the but the scripture does give examples where lots were cast to determine who did, you know, right or wrong or made a mistake or what God's will was, you know, that's, it's used throughout scripture, you know, um, um, you know, the, the, the scripture says in Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but Yahweh is, is its every verdict, you know, that is cast, but God's, you know, is the one who decides at the end. Um, and so the question though is, okay, is that a legitimate way to use it now? You know, is it, yes, the scripture describes it being ha- happening, but is that, is that okay? You know, because some people might, they might want to say, well, gee whiz, maybe I can do something like that and determine the Lord's will, you know, can that still be used, you know, today? Right. Um, um, so, so the modern Christian would look within the framework of scripture, right? Yeah. Right. And, and by the way, let me just give a very terse no to astrology and to tarot cards and to um, soothsayers and psychics on the side of the road and 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 yeah. um, and certain prophets within the church movement who are almost used on the psychic level, right? right. Uh, tell me what to wear. Tell me what to eat. Tell me what to. And God knows which husband you ought to marry. And, right. And that can that can many times fit into the same category. So let me just give a, a across the board. What, what, no what if that. you what if you threw the dice and you didn't like the answer? You say, okay, God, best two out of three can i roll the dice again well (laughs) may i be very may i be very straightforward john and say this some people use scripture in that way okay some some people use scripture in a manner that is almost like tossing the dice it's almost like rolling the scripture open and wherever the page falls without any kind of adherence to context and uh to uh, uh how the scripture was intended to be understood they will just go and say this must in fact be the will of god
God. So it's possible to use the Word of God in a way that the Bible was never intended to be employed, yeah. and and does not, in fact, bring about the pressure of uh, uh, the pr- the pleasure and the blessing of God. And just because you have the words that came from God, yeah. does not mean that you have the blessing that stands behind those words um, uh, you, due to a misuse thereof. You've heard the story of the guy who was doing that, you know, and he turns to one scripture and it says, and Judah hang himself. And the next scripture he turned to, go and do likewise. Yeah. <laughs> what I mean, you do, do quickly. <laughs> what you do, do I mean, yeah, you can get into superstitious, you know, um, what do you call it? Um, habits. Habits. Tendencies, behaviors, uh, and you can literally try to bring God in on that yeah. mess. And and so I want to be very uh, straightforward and condemn that. Now, if we're talking about, well, what's happening in the biblical text, right? Yeah. Okay, so obviously what I was just discussing was a facet uh, on, on various scales, on various gradations of sorcery. And the Bible condemns that across the board. Now, let's go to the questionable aspect. Um so, of course, you had the Urim and Thummim that was um, on the priest's shoulders, and somehow this lit up and gave an indication clearly to the the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, right, yeah. um, of what the direction of God was versus what the direction of God was not. Um, clearly, within um, uh, the text of Scripture, you have this utility of the casting of lots, right? Um, and you have that not only in First Testament, in in, in First Testament, right. but you also have that in New Testament, right. right? In the book of Acts. Acts yeah. Um, and so the question is, first of all, what are we looking at here? Okay, this is what we're looking at. We're looking at in the First Testament an allowable process given by God that was also consistent right. within the culture to ascertain his will to the absence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and to the absence of the holistic biblical right. text. And that's a good point because now we're in sort of New Testament times, or after the resurrection, we have the Word of God completed, and we have the Holy Spirit, believers do, indwelling us, and Jesus says He will be the Spirit of truth, which means that you don't need to have all this other kinds of things determine the truth. The Holy Spirit dwells in you, and the Word of God, obviously, is the truth as well. Um, so you don't need to cast lots to find out who your next king is going to be, you know, or... Uh, or make a decision. So, given the context of what you're saying, in the Old Testament and the First Testament early on, uh, like in selecting uh, who's going to replace Judas, they cast, they drew lots. Um, I know some people who do do something like that today, um, and I don't necessarily agree, I don't necessarily agree with it. Um, but I do know that um, you have you have to be careful approaching even God's will that way either, you know, um, that's, that's, that's very, how do you know that that's actually God's will? Well, well, let's be clear. When you go to the book of Ruth, right, um, the text of scripture, um, is, is demonstrating in real speak, in a realistic circumstance, not the casting of lots that God calls us to come out according to how he would like it to come out, but you have a situation where she chanced to chance, right? right. And there is this circumstantial, almost happenstantial situation where you're saying, um, we don't know what the outcome is 
going to be, and no right. one has a clue. And and what the author of Proverbs is arguing for, and what you see demonstrated throughout the text of Scripture, and particularly in that incident in the book of Ruth, in that phrase, in the field, is this, that God is directing the, the life of the believer, and indeed all of life, providentially. Um, and so the motive that is behind that is this, whatever means by which an individual is appropriately and biblically seeking to know which direction does God want me to go, yeah. that they need to know that the outcome was not left to luck. Right. It was not left to circumstance. Actually, God is the God behind circumstance, and he has his hands in the gloves of, uh, his invisible hands in the gloves of circumstances. And this doesn't mean that the believer ought to wear his lucky cross or right. a lucky sock or anything of that sort. Do you sort. have your lucky sock on? I have none. No. Because <laughs> I, I, I drew lots, and you should have been a Superman fan instead a Batman fan, but... And see, this is where the falsity comes in, because nothing could be further from the truth, right? So if you look within the framework of Scripture, I think that there's something else that's being missed, right? And it's an interpretive aspect, or a hermeneutical aspect, as it were. And that is, we must ask the question, is this prescriptive? In other words, is this the methodology whereby God has prescribed to us, this is how you seek my will, or is this descriptive? Right. That is, is God describing within the progression of the text how earlier he had people seek his will and sometimes how he didn't have them seek his will, but how they sought his will and he graciously uh, accommodated right. Right. Their, their seeking him as a motive and using that as the means. Right. As you move, uh, John, further into the New Testament proper, and now I'm speaking of post-Pentecost, right. um, you do not see this lot casting right. scenario. No. You see them using prayer right. and, and scripture comparison as the means and methodology whereby the will or the counsel of God is sought. Right. And that's in the book of Acts, you know, the Holy Spirit speaks to them in the midst of them praying. Said, apart from me, Paul, Barnabas, you know, here's the work I want them to do. The Holy Spirit now directs them you know, as he directs Philip, you know, go up here and speak and you know, listen. There's a chariot, and the guy is reading the book of Isaiah, you know, and share the gospel with them, you know. So, and uh, so then you have the, the Holy Spirit being the director as he is, you know. So now back in Jonah now, they cast lots. The lot does fall to Jonah. They say, Jonah, <laughs> they start, in verse 8, they start asking rapid-fire questions. You can sense the the urgency. Tell us where 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 are you where are you from? Or uh, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What country? What people are you? You can just imagine these sailors are now they're desperate because so far their their cries to their gods have not helped, right? Because the storms, you know, and we don't know if Jonah has even prayed yet. My assumption he hasn't prayed yet because the scripture is silent on that. Secondly, the storm is still going on. You know? Well, it would seem, I would lean more toward the idea that he has not prayed because no. the scripture seems to present his prayer as a as a 
point of interest, a right. high point right. under uh, circumstances of duress. Right. So it seems that of what we have within this text uh, of an abridged conversation and exchange, um, is it, that is not an aspect that is abridged. This is an aspect where he has not prayed. Right. It, now, these rapid succession questions, uh, John, on one level seem like they're just questions, but I'd like to just point out something about these questions. Earlier, when we were recording last week, I made a comment, yeah. and and my comment was that when the captain says uh, uh, to Jonah that he's to get up now and call on his God, yeah. he's thinking of his individual deity, right. because they're thinking in a very um, a paganistic, right. gentilic mindset, right. right? That each person has a deity. But again, I said that there was an understanding of a hierarchical um, uh, uh, system of deities right. so that every person had kind of a polytheistic, deistic um, um, tier of gods right. that they subscribed to. And these gods had certain arenas that they saw to. So you'd have the overall deity, yep. but then you had sub-deities, if I may uh, uh, put it that way. And with their sub-deities, each of these sub-deities saw to various areas that they right. protected. So what they're going to do now now in asking their questions is try to see, okay, okay, it, it, you have one main God who's obviously not protecting you. Right. That's the captain's question. But then when the mates start to ask questions, they're asking these questions with this in mind. Did you upset this God, that right. God, right. the other God? So, so when an individual is reading this text... It, it's kind of it's kind of like this. Which God did you disturb? Absolutely. So so it's kind of um, um, uh, uh, verse seven. W- yes, it's it's kind of like what is your occupation? Okay, did you upset your occupational God? Where'd you come from? Did you uh, upset your geographical right. uh, a God or or your uh, yes? Um, what is your country? Did you upset that your, main God over the region? Uh, from what people, people are you? Right. right? Did you upset your your nation's God? Right. And so all of these, this is a very polytheistic series of questions that's being asked by these pagans because they're trying to, through investigation, right. get to the bottom Who's, of what God is upset here. Right. And let's, what can we do? About, it's interesting that, that um, the, the, again, the questions that are presented in, in Jonah first by the captain, right? You know, what are you doing here? What, what, how could you sleep? Now these next questions they're they're pointed at Jonah, all leading Jonah to finally to fess up to something, right? Leading him is it's interesting. You know, the first question that's asked in the scripture is asked by God to man, "Where are you?" To to Adam after he sinned in Genesis chapter three, "Where are you?" Now God already knew where Adam's at, you know. And sometimes God allows questions or he asks questions where he already knows the answer. The purpose of the question is to get the person to fess up, you know, to to tell the truth and to to come uh, to come to the truth. Um, and so it's interesting that in verse nine, when he does answer their questions, he answers them in reverse order as well. Yes, he does. He answers them. Uh, he says in verse nine, "I am a Hebrew, uh, and that's my people." That's the last question. Uh, and of course, if he's a Hebrew, he's Israelite, you know. Uh, and I fear. Same word as fears before, but here you could translate it as reverence. Mm-hmm. I revere the Lord God. Which God is that? The God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Now, you had this, this thing you just pointed out about the sailors having tears of gods that they're trying to... Now he's indicated which God he serves. No, this is the Lord God, the creator of heaven, the maker of the sea and dry land. Okay, there's no other God above him. 
Absolutely. Now, what's interesting is, of course, we're not going to get into the, in verse 10, where they had this reaction of their being extremely afraid, because then they realize which God he's, he's made angry or... You know. I am already has a reputation. Right. Right. And, and we see that even when Joshua is getting ready to occupy the land. Right. So obviously there's some sort of uh, reputation. And we can't argue with certainty whether or not his reputation has reached these mariners. But what we can suggest is they have an immediate point of reference in the storm. Right. Now, here's what's interesting. In the text, in the, in the structure of the Hebrew text, this verse, verse 9, is the, it's in a chiastic structure. Mm-hmm. It's the center point. It's the pinnacle point. It is the main point of these verses in this chapter. And here's his confession. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, right? What he doesn't do, though, is he says uh, he doesn't address the calamity that he has caused. You see that? Absolutely. He confesses to... He confesses to who he is. He's Hebrew. What people are you from? What country you're from is assumed. And where you come from. Your occupation, he doesn't say that. He addresses the God he serves, but he doesn't say about the evil that he has done to cause the evil that has come upon them. You see that? Absolutely. He He, leaves something out. He's going to be a guy who doesn't take ownership very well. Right. And you're going to notice that. By the way, let me just look. Again, we're looking at the details. I want to look at the details, but I want to do it by backing up and looking at a bigger picture here. Yes. If you look at the series of questions, why are they asking, um, um, uh, and and you just gave uh, the main point of that, like, why is this calamity going on, uh, 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 happening? Yeah. Um, he hasn't answered that, right? No. But the reason why they're asking occupation, because he doesn't get on the ship saying, I'm a prophet. No. And he doesn't get on the boat saying, I'm running from God. And then where do you come from? He's avoiding, he's right. running, he's hiding. So you're supposed to look at these verses and these questions as things that he's cloaked. So here's so he the reality. He doesn't answer in the, really any of the questions. But but here's what that is, John. It's not just the the dishonesty that comes by line, it's the dishonesty that comes by hiding. Withholding. You're not divulging. You're withholding information, critical information, if we go back up to verse number five, that's putting everybody in jeopardy. Now, what's interesting, he does does later on allude in verse 12. Oh, yes. But he still does not fess up entirely. And we'll we'll get to that in a second. But back in verse nine, this is a confession that he makes of who the God that that he follows. So he says, I fear the Lord God. Now, this is interesting. He is a man who who says the right things. Well said. Right? He has a creed he follows. He has good theology. He declares good theology. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. That is good theology right there. Yes, there, there, there's some details in what he says, and I want to just point out those hold details. Hold on, hold on. Go ahead. He says the right things. Yes. His theology of his declaration is correct, but his life does not match up in his theology. Yes, the, the two are antithetical They're to antithetical. Yes. When you look at this particular text, he says, first of all, I am a Hebrew. Now, that may just seem like a characterization that yeah. that we should just go by and say he's making a national declaration, right, of, yes. of what nation he belongs to. Right. But there is a deliberateness in what Scripture says. Scripture, God, does not waste words. This 
specific phrase is one of the things that tells us that this is pre-exilic or before exile. Right. Because um, um, after exile, right. the the Israelites will be referred to as Jews. Right. And that's something that's going From to happen yeah. after, in fact, their captivity. So this language would argue that this is early literature. Um, but then secondarily, he says, and I fear uh, I am. Go ahead. No, just I was just going to uh, dovetail on that, but just continuing because it's another point I'm going to go on. And he's going to say, <laughs> yeah. I fear the God of heaven. Now, as you said, it's yeah. ironic that he would say that, right? Because it's supposed to be the right speech. Uh, right. I mean, it's supposed to be the right kind of creedal announcement. Right. However, you want to ask yourself, okay, Jonah, um, if you reverence and have due diligent respect for and adherence yes. to I am, then why are we here in this place from verses two through verse number eight? Right. Like all of the rest of that, if you're really reverencing God, all of the rest of this See, should not be happening. Yeah, and just to make a side point here too, you can you can say the right things. You can quote scripture left and right and center. You can have good theology in your creedal statements and in your, in your vocabulary and all that. But if your life does not match up to that, there's a disconnect there. There is something. There's something amiss because for you to say, "I fear the Lord," "I reverence the Lord," meaning I honor God, your your actions completely dis the the the. the not to see you, your actions um, betray you because they aren't matching up to what you say. It's and you're also leaving something out. He says, "I am a Hebrew." He doesn't say, "I'm a Hebrew prophet." He leaves out the word, the fact that he's a prophet. It's one thing for him to be a Hebrew and running from God. Now he's a Hebrew prophet, which he doesn't make that known. He's leaving that out. Um, he says the right thing, but he still doesn't confess fully. That's the thing that's that's really getting to me is that he doesn't say. I'm. This storm is happening because of the fact that I'm running away from God. He won't even confess that even later on. Verse twelve, he says, "For I know that economy that this great storm has come upon you." He doesn't even use the right words there. Absolutely. He says he should have said, "I know on account of me this evil, his calamity has come on you." See, he doesn't. He, he and that's one thing is it's it's um, the fact that he throughout even the rest of the book, he still he does not come fully in confessing. The real issue here of his own heart, John. Uh, John, I want to. Uh, yes, <laughs> I, I want to pierce. I want to pierce first further into that thought, right? Yeah. Because as he's saying this, um, many people say, "See, that's why um, I don't want to go to a modern church because the church um, um, has hypocrites in it." Okay, so so let me articulate your distaste better than you are able to articulate that yeah. distaste yeah. looking at the body of Christ from the outside in. Um, this is hypocritical. This yeah. is carrying a message um, through your mouth that yeah. is inconsistent with your life. Yeah. Uh, the message here and the behavior uh, would pose for us a depiction of professional acting like like uh, okay so i fear or i revere the lord but you couldn't tell it in my life and and so here's what i want to say i want to say first of all let me be very 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 open and say yes you're absolutely right 
not only are there modern hypocrites and, and, and modern individuals who are inconsistent with the message that is recorded in Scripture and the message that is preached from the pulpit, but as a result of Genesis chapter number three, that is a reality amongst not only sinners, but a reality amongst the covenantal people, the, the Israel of God, who do not always adhere to God's truth. In other yeah. words, this can happen with a prophet. This can happen with a preacher, with a teacher, with a member, with people. And it's something that we have to come to bear with. And by the way, let me say this. God admits this. God yeah. admits that his people have this proclivity or this propensity or this bent. I mean, he's but, being very open with this. But let me just let me just interject here. There's a difference between a person, as in Jonah's case, who confesses God to be his God and deliberately tries to avoid this God versus somebody as they were church full of hypocrites, let's say. Somebody who confesses God, whose life doesn't always match up to his confession, but he wants it to be. She wants it to be. Okay. There's a, I believe, help my unbelief. There's a, I'm going in that direction. I stumble, Lord. Um, I may uh, make mistakes, Lord, but but I want to grow closer to you, Lord. That's different than what you have in Jonah, whereas... Bingo. I don't want to be with you, God. That's, now that is... Um, that's the problem here in yes. Jonah's case. Not with a church full of uh, uh, hypocrites because they don't live up to what they say. No, they don't live up to their say because they're still learning how to walk with Jesus. Right. Still learning how to walk by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they make mistakes, but they still want to do and live in, uh, in His will. And that must be seen as contradistinctive from the individual who is seeking to live a deliberate, duplicitous life. Right. Right. Um, I, I want to be a professional actor. Right. So, so my argument is, is there a measure of hypocrisy here? Right. Yes. But he's not trying to be a professional actor. No. What he's seeking to do is run because he knows if I do this, God's going to be God and do that. Right. And so he's saying, I revere him. And my, my specific point of argumentation is this, that... that for you to willingly disobey God is not the full, rich fear and reverence that you're articulating, John. Right, right. right? So, so here you have this, this, this prophet of God who says, I am a Hebrew. I revere I am of heaven, right? Now, now when he's saying he reveres I am all powerful of heaven, um, what he's arguing is this in this book would be an allusion back to the Genesis narrative. Right. Not just the God who controls heaven, but the God who he's going to articulate is maker or right. creator. And he's going to, of course, articulate that he's the creator of land and sea, which in the ancient Near East literature um, uh, was articulated in Babylonian myth and in the Atrahasis and in the Enuma Elish right. as being other deities. Right. So he's giving as as you said, um, uh, a clear presentation, but it also has apologetic aspects in it. Like this is the one true God. Um, and, and as he's saying that, he's arguing that this characterization of God um, um, is, is not just a characterization, but this God is active. Yeah. He's not aloof. And, and he's the God who is at work, whose power you see in this storm. You know, I was just thinking on something completely different. 
than what you were just talking about. My, my, my mind was wandering. What you said was very good and accurate, of course, you know, but I, I couldn't, I'm, I'm thinking about this verse. I'm thinking, and this is the first time that Jonah has spoken in this, ver- in this, in this book, right? Um, and we don't know how much time has gone on since the time uh, that God spoke to Jonah, to him traveling all the way to to, uh, to Joppa and out to the sea and all that, right? We don't know how much time. We haven't heard one word out of the man. This is the first time he's, he's deciding to say something, right? And he, in one sense, he, he lays out a confession, right? Mm-hmm. He is confessing that God, that Yahweh is sovereign, that Yahweh is providential, that he's in control, that he is the God, right? He's, he's, he's saying the right things, right? But it's there's there's a ring of hollow, hollowness to it that I'm, I'm I'm getting from it. He says, "I I am Hebrew. I, I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land." But you notice what he leaves out of that. He he leaves the the he leaves unanswered the question of why has this calamity come on uh, on to us. The first question they ask us, you know, they say. Uh, the, uh, that the, the sailors ask in verse 8, on account, on whose account has this calamity or this evil struck us? Whose fault is it? Does he even say, I am Jonah, a prophet, and I'm running away from God, and this is the reason why this calamity? No, he says, I'm Hebrew, I fear the Lord God. Been, great. He's pointing, he's saying the right things, but his confession is, is it's shallow. And I'm wondering if, and I'm just thinking about the, the the power of true confession, the power of accurate and true confession, where you face the truth and confess the truth. And I, I'm thinking, you know, I think in people's lives, you know, I know people personally, and I'm myself in a person as well, but where they would rather skirt around the truth of the issue than to actually hit it straight on and deal with it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Where if they're confronted with something... They would rather point other things out in people, or they would rather uh, not, that there's a turning point that has to happen, right, in somebody's life. This turning point never happens in Jonah's life. You never see him coming around to confessing where he is truly, right, the evil that he has done, or the, the, the um, disobedience and the, and the lack of caring about these people, even to the end of the book. My point is, your life will never change. Your life will never change unless you face the truth with a full confession of the truth. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And Jonah, he gives you the right, there's something good to say, but he leaves out the most significant thing because that's the thing that's gnawing at his heart the rest of the book. You know, he'd rather die. Oh, please kill me, God. You know, basically, he'd rather die. He delivers the message. And even after he delivers the message, he still rather die. Because he hasn't fessed up with what really is going on. Why is he running away? What is he avoiding? Why is he avoiding God? So I don't know, I'm just thinking about this, that he says the right thing. Um, he tells him who he is. The sailors get word of that. In verse 10, it says, Then the men uh, became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. They get it. They get it. And now they're even more frightened. You mean, okay, now you tell us what God you serve. Oh, my goodness. You you mean, you serve the God of heaven and earth? Are you crazy? Who, who do you think you are to try to flee from God? And they have more sense 
of reverence for God than the man of God does. Well, it argues that um, sin and its adherents is in a state or are in a state of irrationality when they think themselves to mm. be most logical, right? Yeah. And, and to be sure, I want to be um, uh, academically responsible when you're looking at the verse that you said where he's saying, um, basically, this is my resume, uh, Hebrew, I, I fear, uh, I am all powerful of heaven, that in uh, verse 10e, uh, that he was... Which one's, which one's D? You said E. I don't, I, D, D would be... Um, a, B, C, D, E. Where's 10 E? 10D would be for the men new, right? If, if you're going by the, the sections, but okay, you're, you're what, I don't know what me. Bible you have, because mine just says verse 10. You have A, B, C, D in your verse. Mine doesn't have that. I, I guess you had to pay extra for that Bible, because mine doesn't have... <laughs> I have the cheap version, you know? <laughs> you have the sub-alphabetical... <laughs> Subsection I, paragraph. That's right. <laughs> okay, 10E, what does 10E say? So, so he says, um, um, f- in, in D&E, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now, their knowledge of this had to be acquired in the earlier conversation. Right. Albeit the earlier conversation then, according to this, it, it's indicating that somehow the earlier conversation is abridged. Now, not redacted. I'm not suggesting that an author edited it and we don't have the full story. What I'm suggesting is there is a summation for progressive purposes and that the earlier conversation was more likely a fuller conversation, but the point that was being made is he's he's he ultimately owns up to somewhere in that conversation after it's pulled out of him yeah, yeah i'm running from god yeah but this is the right god that i'm running from yeah. but but that's not information that comes out of him with ease it has to be basically coerced or forced out of him because it's not his voluntary admission and it's most likely not his admission in the earlier portion of the narrative yeah it's it's probably most probably an admission made under under duress, um, under duress and and uh, and so that's how it really that's should be seen. Uh, that's pretty sad. When you have to twist a guy's arm to finally fess up he's running from God because these guys are about to die and and finally you're going to fess up. Come. I mean, you twist his arm and torture him, or not torture him, but basically, you know, force him to, to, to turn over the, you know, at least somewhat of the truth. That's a sad state, you know, that Jonah is in but, to but, be there. But John, admittedly, um, running has few luxuries. And and the men who run have. Oh, you might want to rephrase that because I I like to run. Uh, yes, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm speaking specifically about running for God. Running for God, right? okay. <laughs> yes, here's John. I do have. Here's a uh, here's a uh, uh, what do they call that? A selfie of me running from God. That's right. right. <laughs> um, running um, from God has few has few luxuries. Right. And, and you have to realize that it's not going to be easy and God's not going to make that road easy for you. Um, uh, so, so as you're looking at this text, he's saying, who is the individual being run from? Um, it's the God of heaven. Now, again, I want to pose the strength of this phrase um, in, in two uh, categories. Number one, I want to pose it in the category 
of of Jonah's perspective. Which phrase? Which phrase are you talking the about? The God of Heaven and, yes. and what it looks like I'm, to be I'm running verse, from Him. Dude, you're in verse nine. I'm in verse ten. I'm in I'm in a nine-ish, ten-ish, nine-ish, ten, nine-ish, ten-ish connection yeah. here. So, so yeah, I we, knew you were slow in running. You're sl- <laughs> <laughs> okay. You're you're in in nine e right? Is that what you? <laughs> whatever your Bible says, nine. Anyway, so so in his effort to run, who is he running from? From Jonah's perspective, this is all powerful God who said, "Let there be." So, so so that's the force behind. Yeah, he's the God of heaven, and he's the covenantal God of of the nation of Israel, of the Hebrew nation, right? But from their perspective, this this statement that that comes out of some of the mariners' mouths, how could you do this, is, is a sense, is a voice of being incense. Right. They're ticked. They're right. bothered. Well, they have, they have more sense, more spiritual sense than the spiritual leader does. You know, or supposedly, you know, the prophet, the man of God, they have more, they're the ones who cry out to, to their gods first, right? They're praying first. Then they beg Jonah, please pray for us. You know, maybe it's your God, we, you know, somebody's made angry. And then they realize, oh, he's running from the God of heaven and earth, the maker of the sea and the dry land. Hello, could you, what's, what's God in? You know, they have more, more spiritual sense than Jonah does. And yet they realize, though, they realize that they still need Jonah to be the one that's praying because they know that Jonah has a connection with this God that they don't. Absolutely. And in the ancient Near East, one of the things that you did not want to do was upset the gods. Everybody knew this. Yeah. And so for Jonah to, in their estimation, have deliberately done things that would upset the gods, they're looking at him and saying, this is irrational. Who would think that they could honestly run away from a god, but in Jonah's um, um, thinking, the god definite article? And, and the concept is, this is completely irrational. Now, let me project forward for a moment. Go ahead. You were going to make no. A point. I was going to. I was going to make a connection with um, just thinking about when, when people of the world have more sense than the people in the church. You know, when when sometimes when you have somebody in the world that has better morals than the person in the church, or has really I don't I'm better ethics. Let's say, you know, I'm thinking about Paul writing to the Corinthians, and he's saying, "What you got a guy who's sleeping with his stepmom, yeah, with his father's yeah. wife, and you're proud of that." Yeah, you know, and in one Corinthians chapter number five, yeah. he addresses this. And he addresses yes. that, and he's like, "Not even the world does that kind of thing," you know. And that's that that ought not to be, you know. And that's that's surprising. And here, here, you know the word of God, you know the will of God, and the ways of God, and yet you're running away. Well, I, you were actually thinking in the same vein in a different text than I was thinking. Okay. I was thinking about comparing this idea um, of of what Paul says in Romans 1 and Romans 12. Yeah. He presents in Romans 1 the argument that the um, the Gentile, the non-covenantal, unbelieving individual yeah. is in a state of irrationality. Yeah. Um, madness, if you will. The kind of madness, Ephesians 2, that courted all of us who were sons of disobedience and operated according to um, demonic powers and were children of wrath and disobedience even as the same, right? But then he says in Romans 12 that we have now uh, arrived, and I'm paraphrasing, at a a state of logical worship. And the idea is 
in Christ we have traded irrationality, illogicality for true rationality and logicality, right? And 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 this is the kind of thing that marks two kinds of persons in scripture. Number one, the unbelieving man. But number two, in 1 Corinthians, it marks the soulish man or or the man that is giving over to the 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 natural mind, which is not an unbelieving mind. Yeah. It's a man who has a mind that's given more over to unbiblical psychological thinking rather than the sort of biblical thinking that should in fact direct a believer's life. Okay, so let me just interject because I got this other question that comes to my mind. And I'm thinking about this as you're talking about, you know, it's one thing for somebody that's in the world who doesn't know God to have, you know, no rationality, right? There's not in the ways of God, right? But then you have somebody who's actually, who knows God and yet doesn't have rationality. Or let me let me state the question this way. Um, can you really f- run away from God? No, it's impossible. Psalm 139. Oh, All things are before him, right? It's a rhetorical question. Okay. Yeah, yes. <laughs> you can't. You can't run away from God, right? Correct. Because that's the point. He says he's, they're fleeing, he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. What goes through a person's mind, a believer's mind, to convince themselves that they can run from God. Like, why, let me phrase it this way, why does a believer run from God? Because a believer, and this is important, a believer, according to um, Johannine literature in 1 John chapter 1, who is walking in darkness, not pursuing moral light, or to even go further than that, a believer who is not John 15, abiding in him and right. his word abiding in you, or to even go uh, more than that, back to Solomon, who becomes the quintessential picture of this as the wisest man who ever lived, a person who is running more toward their will and their desire and their aspirations will necessarily run from God, but because the two oh. are not congruent. Okay, let's, let's, let's go down to you and me, dude. Have you ever run from God? Absolutely. Okay, why? You run because now, there's... No, you, know, you. Oh, oh, yes. You personally. I'm, yes, I'm speaking okay. in, in... Put on your Batman Generality, suit. right. Okay. <laughs> but, but running from God. I, when I'm running from God, I run because of this, uh, I, which, is, which are several reasons, right? Number one, uh, I run from him because it's not something that I want to do. Okay. Right? Number two, I run because I'm not sure that he has my best interest okay. in mind. Right? Right? Number three, I run because I'm afraid. Right. Right? Uh, Number four, I run because I'm ignorant. Right. And number five, I run because I see the crowd running one way and I think maybe I misunderstood God. Maybe it was really this way because this way seems to be more successful than the way that God told me to run. Okay, so now when you're running away from God, and I agree with those five points that you just made, what what prevents you from running a marathon in that direction other than being out of shape what prevents you from <laughs> running no seriously what what is it that turns you around in that stuff because there are believers who do run you know um, from God's will let's say in their lives for those reasons they're afraid you know they're not certain if God has their back you know and, and go on from there what is it that turns a person around because there's people like you know okay myself included I run from God 
you know, for various, you know, for various of those five reasons, you know, mainly because of fears and, and um, not certain, you know, that kind of thing. Not because I didn't care about what God wanted to happen through right. me, let's say. Not because I didn't care about the people he wants me to talk to. More of, I don't think I'm the right guy, God, and so you got to pick somebody else. So what turns you around? Because that's, here's, at some point, you know, we have a Jonah who's running from the presence of God. Let's back it up here. You have not just Jonah, you have the people he belongs to, the the Hebrew nation, the Israelites, who are supposed to be the people of God, who also are in the same kind of boat, quote unquote, you know, yes. no pun intended. The question is, to us as believers, what causes us to then turn around? What what is it causes to say, I'm going to stop running? Because there's a lot of people out there who are running from God's will for their life, and they know what God's will for their life is, but they're running for a certain reason, maybe because of fear, lack of confidence in God, you know, God's will, maybe because of the crowds going one way, or what they see could happen. Oh, if I follow you, God, then I'm going to lose everything I have, or something like that. Right. What what has turned what turned you around? Well, I, I want to first speak theologically, right? And say that um, in the words of C.S. Lewis, the holy hound dog of heaven, who's yes. in constant pursuit of his people. Um, to put it in Davidic language, in the Psalter, um, it's his rod and staff, yeah. right? Uh, uh, that turns you around really quick. Yeah. Um, uh, also, what causes you to turn around um, is a... a, a a revisitation of that longing for fellowship, Psalm 73, yeah. when Asaph says, right, right. Um, as for me, my foot almost slipped, right? right, when I beheld the prosperity of the wicked. But what happens? He actually admits in the midst of the psalm, I was like a brute beast. Okay, so theologically, that well, let's get you... Pers- Several reasons, yeah. right? Yeah. Those, so those would be the reasons. Now let me articulate them in personal speak. If you belong to him, you miss the fellowship that comes from um, uh, uh, his presence. And, and you are ever before him, but the closeness of heart, the synergy of soul that you feel in the pleasure of his direct effulgence is absent in those moments because you may indeed be in his service or under his employ, if I can use that impersonal language, but, but God doesn't call you to work for him First, he calls you to be with him primarily, and the work of God comes out of your fellowship with God. So I have to admit, in a very Psalm 42 manner, it's as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs after thee. It's that kind of, Lord, I long for your presence, and I don't want to be in in incongruency with you. Yeah. You know, it's interesting... I think in Jonah's case, and I think in a lot of believers' cases as well, there's an sort of an anger at God. Maybe, um, maybe it's not as articulated in Jonah. Jonah says, "I knew that you would, you were gracious and compassionate. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew that you would want to save the Ninevites. You know, and I didn't like that. Basically, saying, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with that. You know, those people deserve to burn. You know, that's kind of like his attitude. You know." I know that there are believers, there are Christians out there who have decided not to go to church anymore, or they don't fellowship with, with believers because they're angry at the church, or they're angry at God, or somebody's hurt them, you know? They're, and I've gone to churches like that. I've, I've left churches, you know, where that's the effect, you know? And 
um, that's normal. People are going to hurt you. You know, people are, there's going to be pain and there's the questions, God, why did you allow this to happen? You know, and you go, there's, there's, that happens, you know, and some people are in that state where God allowed certain things in their lives um, that were tragic or hurtful and now they're angry at God and they're, they're stone cold against God because, well, how could God be so loving and allow me to go through that hurt, you know? So there's this really upsetness at God. Deep down, if they could change it, perhaps they would and say, okay, God, if I can trust you, I would. But I'm not ready yet, God. I'm not there yet, you know? And so there's this, they, they in, the, in, their own, in their own lives, they go into the, to the bottom of the boat, so to speak, and they hibernate there, and, they, and they, their life doesn't go any forward because there's an angry at God. And God is the one who, as you said, he's the hound dog of heaven. It's interesting, he still pursues Jonah here. And he still pursues the person that is in that state there. And he says, I know where you're at. And I'm, my love for you is even greater than you imagine. And I understand the hurt you've gone through. I understand the disappointments. And I understand that people in church can be, you know, not so nice, you know, and that church, you know, can disappoint you. But I still care for you, you know. And so my point is, I guess, in all these questions really is, it is... It's going to be part of humanity or, or human experience that we encounter these trials and that we encounter these situations. And how the whole point of, of running from God that Jonah displays here for his reasons is not unlike when people run from God today as well. Um, they don't like, they think he's one way when he's not that way. Or they think... Um, you know, I'm not going to become, I'm not going to follow you, God, because I'm going to lose everything in my family. Well, doesn't, that, God doesn't say that. You know, I know people that, who have burned at churches, you know, who, who, are, who are believers, but they don't fellowship anymore with other believers because of hurts, let's say, and disappointments, and they're angry at God. And they're sort of like Jonah in a sense. They're running from God's will for their lives. They're running from God's call in their life. Or they're running just from from wanting to to grow closer to God. There's this there's this approaching God with a handout that basically says only, only so far. Well, let they have walls coming up. You know, uh, there's a there's a wall of, of mistrust, a wall of bitterness and anger, and all this kind of stuff, right? Um, and God still says to them, "I know where you're at. I haven't left you. You know, um, I still care for you, and my plan for you hasn't changed." I didn't give up on Jonah when he ran from me, and I'm not giving up on you either when you're running from me either. Well, here's the caveat, and, and let me let me um, drill further into that issue, but go a slightly different direction, right? Um, so, he's God, right? Yeah. According to the text, he's the Lord God of heaven, the earth, and the seas. So, so why is God bothered by him running? And why is God aggravated, clearly in hot pursuit of him? Because it's not like God is looking at the repertoire of his tools yeah. and saying, oh my goodness, I'm so aggravated with Jonah. That's the only person that I have that can do this, right? <clears throat> it, clearly, God's not as a, at a loss for prophets. I mean, right. listen to what he says to Elijah. 
Um, thank you, Elijah, for your um, <laughs> yeah. uh, feelings in this area. But just so you know, there's yeah. 7,000 people in the wings who could have taken your job, right? Yeah. It's not because I don't have people who, who have refused to bow. Um, uh, uh, who, uh, that, that's not I've the case. I've got enough on my side. Absolutely. So the question is, why is God bothered? I, I would argue that God is not bothered for himself. I think he's bothered for Jonah here. Yeah. And, and here's the reason for him being bothered. It, look at what he's trying to do through Jonah. Yeah. I'm trying to make you the most successful missiological servant of the First Testament. Why, why is he bothered at Moses? Do you understand? I want to write five books yeah. through you that the entire rest of Scripture is going to be based on. I want to use you in this phenomenal, astounding way. So so why is God in hot pursuit and seemingly angry or bothered? It's not because you've thwarted or frustrated God. It's because God has great plans that he wants to accomplish through you, and you're the choice. You're the person that he wants to do it with and through. You know, I think I think maybe we can summate this the the word or the message that God wants to communicate through his prophet is just as important as the word that he wants to communicate to his prophet. He wants to use you to share the love of God, but he also wants to share that love in you as well. Um, and I think in Jonah's case, he struggles with the message um, with receiving the message to himself. The message of Jonah is really about Jonah. The message that Jonah is going to pr- proclaim is part of the story. The other part of the story is the message that God is trying to communicate to Jonah as his prophet. Um, and sometimes as we as believers, um, it is hard for us often to receive that message. But God wants to speak not only to you, but through you, and use you as well for his glory. Yeah, I, I, I wanna I wanna close on this, John, because I think this is really important. What if we were reading a story where the book was not about Jonah running from God but to God? Yeah. What would that story be like in these chapters? Here's the sad part. We'll never know. Yeah. We'll never know what it would have looked like had Jonah run directly headlong into intimacy with God and also into obedience concerning his will. We'll not know what that story is like. We don't have that luxury in scripture from his perspective. But it's not too late for you and for I or for me and and for you and I and, and, and our listeners. In other words... If your story right now involves um, the pitter-patter of feet and a life that is running the opposite direction, if you're running into a six-figure income um, and you know that's not where God wants you to be and you still have breath in your lungs and, and light in your eyes, we don't know how his story would have been different, but we can know yours. We can know what it's like for an individual who knows they're going opposite of God to turn around. And when you do, I can tell you this. There's a good God who has great expectations that's waiting 
to be realized through you. They're the blessings of God, and they have your name on them. Thank you again for listening to Living Truth with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. If you would like to hear this podcast again or previous episodes, you may do so at passionforhisword.com. That's passionforhisword.com. You may also like us on Facebook at Living Truth Radio Broadcast. That's Living Truth Radio Broadcast. Again, our prayer for you is that God would sanctify you in truth, for His Word is truth.